Hi folks, a very quick announcement before we get started on the episode this week. And that is a huge thank you to Katie Unicorn Stewart. I don't know if your middle name really is Unicorn. If it is, that is an awesome name. So the fabulous Katie Unicorn Stewart gave us a recent review on Apple Podcasts about the recent Governance Summit summary. So five stars for Take On Board, she says. Loved the recent Governance Summit summary podcasts. Super useful. Katie, happy to help. Thank you so much. And thanks for taking the time to do a review. So a little prompt for others that might be listening. I love it when I get reviews and you might get read out on the pod as well. So get in there and work out how to do ratings and reviews and let me know what you think of the pod. All right, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Take On Board podcast, where we talk all things boards and governance. I'm your host, Halia Svensson. Being on a board can be interesting, valuable and exciting, yet it can also be really lonely, challenging and hard. So here at Take On Board, we'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you build your governance wisdom. We'll shine a light on how to navigate your way onto your first board or to build your board portfolio. We'll also help you to work through those challenges that keep you awake at night. Each week, I'll talk to women who have been there, done that, and together we'll discover what we need to take on board to be your best in the boardroom. Today on the Take On Board podcast, I'm speaking with Sam McGolrick about the power of organisations to improve the health, happiness and resilience of our society. First, let me tell you about Sam. Sam's niche is in educating board members on effective governance and leadership of well-being, health and safety matters as a means through which the board can cultivate a culture where people feel they matter and create spaces where people leave work in a better condition than when they arrived. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast, Sam. Thanks, Halia. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. Well, we've been talking about this for a while, so it's awesome that we've finally got to have the conversation. But of course, before we have the conversation about health and well-being, let's dig a little bit deeper about you. Tell me, what was young Sam like? And when did you get your first inkling that you might end up where you are now? Yeah, I probably never had an inkling of where I'd... (laughs) Um, Let's see. Young Sam. So I'm a Canadian born in Thunder Bay, which my mother-in-law seems to love the name of that city. But yeah, Thunder Bay in Ontario, that's the East Coast. I moved over to the West Coast when I was about three. I grew up in Vancouver. I miss it desperately right now, given I I can't, uh, very difficult to get home during these times. But grew up in Vancouver, graduated high school and didn't go to university, didn't have the grades at that point, but wasn't interested at all anyway. I went to Europe, did my overseas travels. I loved traveling. I spent uh, six months in Edinburgh working there, met friends, uh, had relationships. So, you know, grew a life there Mm -hmm. and didn't want to come home, frankly. Came home for about a year, maybe two years, and decided had to go back traveling. And that's when uh, I arrived in or decided to head over to Australia because I could do another long venture on the working holiday visa and came over here in the year 2000. Traveled around here for a bit. I've seen a lot of Australia, had loved this country to bits. Haven't left, met my husband about 
couple months into me being here, spent a bit of time, my working holiday visa ran out here. So I spent a bit of time in New Zealand to try to stay in the uh, vicinity, I guess, the region, did some work in Christchurch, adore New Zealand as well. So I really love this, this area of the world. Couldn't stay any longer though, because visas had ran out. So my husband and I decided that, yeah, we want to make a go of this. So I went home to get my, uh, what did I come back as a student? And so that's when I decided to go to university. I was 29 years old. You know, I'm the person in the groups at university where everybody's like, get in her group. She does all the work. Uh, The mature age student up the back that's serious about actually learning rather than just the experience of university. Yeah. Yep, that was me. Uh, I would I would show up to class and I'd be like, oh, no, I read everything that I was asked to. They're like, you what? You read it? What did you guys do last night? Oh, we were out. We did. I'm like, how did you, how, how can you come to these classes and not understand what they're talking or not do the reading? So yeah, the uh, a bit of a, as you say, mature student kind of nerd that everybody kind of wanted to, to be in my, my group projects or beyond my group projects. So I graduated from UTS is where I went to uni mm-hmm. and started at Deloitte. And at that time, sorry, I was very interested in sustainability when I left university. Yeah. And well, in fact, I started as a PA at Deloitte. That didn't go so well. And uh, I didn't make that probation period. And um, But at the time, as I say, I was really interested in sustainability. So when that didn't work, I, I asked if they had any roles in the uh, sustainability team, and they did. So I made the shift, the lateral move over, which was very yeah. nice of them. And then um, there was no work in that area. But guess where there was work? Health and safety. And my uh-huh. boss was like, you can come and do, I got plenty of work and I've never looked back. That's pretty much uh, where I, how I kind of fell into health and safety. Went uh, to UNSW and got my um, graduate diploma in health, safety and environment a few years later. And I left Deloitte about five years after being there and started my own kind of consulting business, doing much to what I was doing at Deloitte, auditing, system development, But it's in the last three years that I kind of had this shift in where I wanted to focus my energy and or last three to five years, I started working more heavily with boards and executives on governance frameworks and all that jazz. And um, that's where I really saw that I had more of a, um, I guess, where my mission or where my influence was best placed is that I could speak and talk to governance and I enjoyed it better than, you know, developing some of the system stuff. My, whenever I go away on holidays, my friend's like, there's my safety. Cause I'm like, look at this. They don't have this. They don't have this. There's no life jackets in this little boat in, you know, in Thailand. Okay. So it's brought you to this space around health and safety, but it's more than health and safety. Well, it's more than what people traditionally think of health and safety is probably a better way of putting it. And, and I know part of your view is that, you know, organizations have this real potential to improve Yes, the health and safety, but also the happiness and the resilience and the well-being of our society. So if organisations have that role, then boards also have a role in that. For boards, where should they begin in this? You're quite right that it's more, yes, organisations are like this like epicentre of like being able to have such a broader impact on our health, happiness and resilience in society. And I believe that's through improving health, safety and well-being outcomes. So, yeah, where do boards start? 
it's really about understanding your influence. There's a few different misconceptions around um, how the level of influence boards have on outcomes. And that's a particular important thing for boards to get across is that they have a lot of influence on health, safety and well-being outcomes. And considering that people are spending over a third of their lives at work, we have this like real big responsibility and opportunity to invest in understanding more about how they influence health, safety, and well-being. Understand the key levers and, and just ways that they can make an impact on those outcomes, a positive impact on those outcomes. Because a lot of the times we don't, if we don't recognize our influence or realize the breadth of our influence, mm. then of course we might be doing things that are to the detriment of the outcome, right? We might be creating adverse outcomes without even realizing it. So where do they start? To me, it's a, it's a lot about recognizing influence. Yeah. And the influence they have on that organization. Okay. So it's, so what I heard in there was there was some levers, two things. A, they need to understand their influence. So I'm wondering if you've got some tips for boards to think about that for them. And secondly, you talked about the levers that the board can pull around that as well. So I'm wondering if you can explore that as well. So I think to talk about the influence boards have, I think I want to talk about, I want to mention three misconceptions that I have found in my time working with boards. Mm. And these misconceptions, I think, prevent board members from stepping more into a leadership role rather than purely an oversight role. For me, that's that, that part of leading by example, right? It's not just waiting for things to come to me or being told by the executive or even asking certain questions. Even though I have a program that talks about asking better questions is really important, you know, even though I think that that's important, it's what you say and do in the boardroom as well. It's your behavior. So I really think there's for us to look at creating, as you mentioned in the beginning, places and spaces where people leave work in a better condition than when they arrived, this is called regenerative thinking. And so mm. if we want to create positive outcomes and make people better, then we need board members to step up. Okay. Yeah. So what I think there are three misconceptions around why board members are um, maybe reluctant to step up is firstly, yeah, they don't recognize the breadth of their influence on well-being, health and safety outcomes. And I think that might stem a bit from a broader misconception of the board's influence on culture. And, and culture has a significant influence on outcomes, right? So for example, I've heard NED suggest that the best way to drive culture is through the appointment of a CEO. However, that mindset really separates the decisions made in the boardroom from outcomes at the you know, sharp end at the front line. Mm-hmm. So from a well-being, health and safety perspective, you know, putting the onus on the CEO to improve outcomes makes it mm, perhaps more difficult for board members to recognize how their own behavior and governance decisions inform the perception of those in the organization as to the priority placed on well-being, health, and safety. Because boards inform structures and systems that that the executive implement as well. Like it's from what they say, what they ask for, what you notice and comment on. And so when something goes terribly wrong and the board then questions, why would someone make such a stupid decision? What we're doing at that point is looking down into the organization to find bad apples and broken parts instead of looking like up and out. It's a frame, Mm. like a language I I like to often use. Look up and out to understand the factors that are influencing people's decision-making and importantly, where the board is influencing 
those structures and systems that perhaps decrease the priority on well-being, health, and safety. Put it this way, do you think, I guess, that the culture and the governance at Crown Resorts or Australia Posts or Dreamworld would change simply by changing the CEO? Because more than likely not, if the CEO is working under those same conditions, the same structures and systems, right, that, that managed the previous CEO, same rewards, same incentives, same targets, you know, you might see short-term change, but it won't be transformational or systemic, which is why the board plays that such important role in outcomes. So that's, you know, one of those misconceptions that I think recognizing your influence and like we just talked about, there's a question I often get asked when I'm presenting to boards on health and safety governance. And it was always, do we have a safety culture? Now, health, safety, and well-being are outcomes of a broader organizational culture. You can't separate these things. So people won't prioritize health, well-being, and safety. If your organization and the, and the climate prioritizes profit at all costs, or if targets make it difficult to prioritize well-being. I mean, Dreamworld is a good example of this. There's, there's not one thing that led to the issues at Dreamworld, but in terms of the board's role, there are many examples of how Dreamworld's board prioritized profit through mm. what it asked for and measured and commented on. Another misconception I think that kind of prevents boards from perhaps stepping up into that leadership role that we need is that I think that it might be that there's an incorrect assumption that executives know how to lead well-being, health, mm. and safety. Now, there's not a lot of training out there for executives, and there's an expectation that they know what to do. Now, I'm not entirely sure where that, so that assumption comes from, but for me, it should be fairly clear, given the state we're in now, right? We have one in five people who experience a mental illness. The workplace is now the leading cause of death, given that we've had, an, um, due to work-related stress, organizational injustice, all these things that are leading to mental illness, particularly high levels of work-related stress, burnout. People are leaving their employers because they're not fulfilled. They want more from life. It should be kind of clear that executives mm. are not necessarily equipped to deal with the complexities involved in leading well-being, health, and safety. And frankly, yeah. there are many executives who are personally struggling with their own mental health issues because of what perhaps they've had to give up as they climb that corporate ladder. There's actually lots of research that shows that those who have risen to senior positions have sacrificed a lot along the way, like family and romantic relationships. Like their support network in, in the organization and outside of it is much weaker because of it. And that support network is really important for us feeling like preventing feelings of loneliness and it hinders their performance. So they actually found that 70% of first-time CEOs found that their loneliness hindered their performance. And other um, surveys found where um, CEOs have a higher average of divorce rate, that divorce actually is linked to poor performance as well and greater risk of loneliness. And if, if we have a correlation between loneliness and performance, it becomes yeah. a governance issue. Yeah. So I think that that's something to, importantly, why boards need to step up. And when we're talking about those key levers, it's feeding into the kinds of um, incentives that we're putting together. The targets, organizational targets that we set, are they promoting or hindering health and safety? Mm. Are we making it difficult for people to prioritize health and safety when it matters most to do so? I'll talk about another one in a sec, but that third misconception is for me probably the biggest one when it comes to safety, health, and well-being. And it's that it's the fact that we start to, to measure the absence of failure or the absence of negative events as a measure mm. of success. 
it's, it's a common theme that I've heard throughout my career. And it was further highlighted when I conducted interviews of directors before I created my online program. But the perception is that if we are not seeing adverse events like injuries and illnesses, Mm -hmm. then we have to be doing well. You hear it all the time, right? Like, oh, I think we're doing, I just heard it the other day, actually. We're doing pretty good. We haven't had many incidents. Yes. Immediately, I know that what the paradigm is of that person. Mm -hmm. We have annual reports, it's another lever. We're measuring safety by lost time injury frequency rates. That's not a safety measure. So much research out there to say that, yet it's still in as an indicator to shareholders and other stakeholders as to how well you're doing at safety. Really, injury rates full stop are not great performance measures because, again, it perpetuates us to look at the absence of injuries Um, Lower injuries means we're doing well. And then we're we're like flabbergasted when something happens. But that's kind of besides the point. If we want to look at regenerative leadership, how can we say that looking at the absence of something and measuring Mm -hmm. how we did when, okay, so we failed here, like we've had an injury happen. And now we're going to try and learn how to be successful from that. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't we put all our effort into looking at all the ways we we create success every day? all the positive capacity in our organization and how people from a safety perspective are juggling and managing safety um, yes. every day because you're not having incidents every day and injuries mm. every day. What are they doing and where are they having to compromise on safety to make ends meet? That's yes. where we want to focus our attention. And quite frankly, that's where the board needs to start asking different questions around that sort of stuff and not about well, what happened after the incident or waiting for things to happen. Or waiting mm. to even see near misses. Mm. Put resources to looking at where we're doing things well. Oh, so many things on there. Like what was in my mind as you were talking about the absence? Because the other thing I think that that often prompts is if an organisation gets very tied up in incidents, for example, they it also means that sometimes things might get reported. Because the organisation, you know, we're seeking to reduce the number of incidents around, you know, whatever, back injuries from lifting or some of the more mental health sides of things like bullying and so on in the workplace. So people just don't report them. So sometimes, you know, the conversations I've found is that when you start to focus on these things, reporting actually goes up. And that's a good thing. It's not a good thing that it's happening, but it's a good thing that you know about it. Yep. Absolutely. So if mm. we're, we still have to manage and, and, and understand incidents mm. that are happening. Yeah. Yes. Where we focus our, a lot of our attention is different. And you make a great point that if our energy is focused on reducing incidents and by gosh, if we put targets around that mm. and, and say, and measure and incentivize people on that. So many examples of where people don't report. Um, I think there was even where we engage contractors and often we might put a clause in there where they're not allowed to have uh, certain t- to keep an injury rate at a below a certain yeah. level yeah. and when that's written into your contract and you're paid based on that your livelihood is coming from mm. that what do you think the mindset's going to be of that and there was this example of a, a man who never reported the contractor injuries in his team that were happening on the client's site and he's now in jail because he was awarded number of incentives millions of dollars in incentives for the work he was doing but, but injuring people along the way. Mm. My husband worked for a company that if they kept their injury frequency rate low enough, they would donate money to a charity. 
Mm-hmm. Like, where would the mindset be then? Don't be the person that yes. messes that up. Oh, like, wow. we have to think through that, that repercussions. And that's the best role that the board is playing when you're talking about the levers. It's right. Getting those tools in place and, and mindset to think about, okay, how is this going to filter down? And I know people will say that they do a lot of that, but I think there needs to be more. We need tools to help them do that more with health, safety, and well-being. Because people can say, actually, they do that a lot, but we could look at, you know, Wells Fargo Bank and a lot of different, where we're not asking better questions to understand how incentives drive behavior and spending yes. time on it. Like, I don't know about you, Helia, but I'm looking a lot into how much time does the board have? I think time in the boardroom is 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 probably one of the factors that contributes to how, how much time they can spend on figuring out these mm. um, repercussions. And mm. I think that that's something, that's a bit of a challenge. Yeah. And even um, ensuring, I think, where it's where it's dealt with through the board structures as well. Like is, it, is health and safety, for example, under audit and risk, or is it under people and culture, for example, in terms of the subcommittees and those sorts of things as well? So who's doing it well? I think... What does well look like is probably the best thing because it's hard to tell from an annual report if you're doing it particularly well. There's a lot of feedback on ESG reporting that Mm -hmm. shareholders are saying that a lot of what those reports are telling them is what you're doing, not how effective it is. And Mm. so that's a place where I want to focus a bit more of my energy in the future is looking at indicators to really represent effectiveness. Because I will say this, a lot of lead and lag indicators are both important, but there is a very big mindset around or a strong mindset around lag is bad. Lag means you're immature. Lead Mm. is where you need to be. They're both important. They tell a different story, right? The way I teach it is lead indicators will tell you implementation of things, for instance. Lag indicators is retrospective, but it tells Mm. you if that's effective. And Mm. I think this mindset around going to lead indicators and shaming almost lag indicators, over time, we've come to this point where shareholders are like, yeah, but are you effective? Stop telling me about all these proactive things you're doing. Is it working? Because I recognize I'm being told that there's an ROI, a big Mm. ROI on uh, investment in mental health. It's like $4, anywhere from $4 to $7 um, ROI on mental health programs. Safety is seen to be people work harder for organizations where they feel their safety, that their employer values their safety. So there is a business case for it. So let's get to telling me if you're effective. So anyway, that's that was a that was my garden path there, Elias. <laughs> <laughs> we love the garden path. Um, oh gosh, these conversations go so quickly. What what are the main points you want people to take away from the conversation that we've had today? Yeah. Okay. I think there's some key questions that I'd like uh, board members to ask themselves. Do you see success first of all as the absence of failure? For example, do you see your executive putting resources into understanding how things go right instead of just putting resources into understanding how things went wrong when they fail? So Mm safety is a good example of that. But a second question, I'd like you to think about whether you look at outcomes in isolation of the environment or see people's behavior as a bad decision instead of a, a result of the conditions in which they're working conditions Mm. in in, like where are you having as a board influence on how people perceive priorities 
we need more leaders who are systems thinkers and those who can appreciate that everything is interconnected and things will emerge in systems that we can't fully appreciate where that's come from because everything's interconnected. So when looking at patterns of poor behavior, we want to look to see how the systems and structures are influencing those patterns yes. of behavior. Yes. And for your audience, that's, that's where the board is influencing those things. And finally, I think that third question is like, am I truly self-reflective for the specific purposes of today? I, I like ask yourself, do I question where my assumptions come from? Do I look deeply enough at how I make decisions because we, we go through like this, a number of unconscious steps to making sense of a situation. That's good for us to understand what people do in the front line, as mm. well as in the boardroom. We take in our values and assumptions and beliefs, and we frame opinions about things. Mm. But, you know, we need to be more self-reflective to look at, okay, well, how do I come up with those and talk in a boardroom about how we come up with those? There's a great tool called the Ladder of Inference that walks us through to have more open conversations about that. And I encourage any board member to use that tool in the boardroom. But, you know, um, be curious is that kind of self-reflectiveness too. Be curious. Keep a, be a lifelong learner. It's really important. Yes. It's so important, isn't it? You can't just, yeah, rest on, just like an organisation can't rest on your laurels. I think board members can't rest on their laurels in the boardroom as well. Hence the importance of your podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Well, then for people to learn more or explore more and think more and be curious about these things, is there a resource that you can recommend to the Take On Board community? Yeah, I would love to. I have a program called Lead with Heart in the Boardroom. So that is a program uh, where I teach board members about uh, their leadership and governance of culture, systems change, and well-being, health, and safety. So where they have the most influence to drive, as you mentioned in the beginning, cultivate a culture where people feel they matter, um, Mm -hmm. ask better questions, remove excuses, and lead by example. But it's a lot about that foundational knowledge, which I think is really missing because I can give you a checklist to say, oh, go and ask these questions. But I always say this, once your executive says to you, oh yeah, we got that. Or your health and safety professionals. Yeah. No, that's fine. I've got, well, where do you go from there? So for me, it's a big piece around that foundational knowledge. And that's what I offer in that, that program as well. But the ladder of inferences out there, go to, I've got a, um, a tool on that too. That's a great way to have a better conversation about how we make decisions. Fantastic. And I'll, I'll make sure we put a link to that in the show notes as well, folks. So it'll be in the show notes. And so I say, if you're out walking at the moment and you think, but the show notes are going to disappear as soon as this podcast is over, just go to my website. You'll find all of the show notes to things there. I think you also talked just before about, you know, regenerative leadership. And I've had a couple of conversations already on Take On Board around that. So Carol Sanford, who I think I know, has already been on. So folks, I'll make sure a link to that is also in the show notes. And Trish Hansen also. So I'll put some of those links in the show notes. There's probably some others. So as I think about it afterwards, I might add some more as well. Fantastic. That has been such a useful conversation, Sam, thinking about those kind of misconceptions and the tips for for board directors to really explore that more deeply. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom uh, with the Take On Board community today. Thanks, Halia. It's been such a pleasure. Hi there, it's Halia. That's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together. So it's great to be able to share these conversations that I'm having with these amazing group of women with you. Now, can I ask a favour? Could you share this podcast with someone you know? 
perhaps you can share it with some of your board colleagues or someone else that you know that's interested in exploring all things boards and governance. With your help, we can grow the Take On Board community. Last but not least, if you want to continue the conversation, you can also join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group where there's lots of great discussions, tips, tricks and resources being shared. I would love it if you can join in the conversation there. You can find it by searching Take On Board in Facebook. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another fabulous conversation.